If, uh, if you don't know, we're going through the book of Titus, if you haven't been with us in the last couple weeks, um, something we say a lot, uh, that our, our bread and butter, something we're always going to go to if, if you want to continue to be a part of uh, redemption and redemption Peoria is uh, we're going to go through books in the Bible. We're going to take chapters and verses and we're going to kind of just roll through them and learn and, and, and not try to uh, grab different parts and put together things, but really kind of um, unearth what scripture is saying in, within the context uh, of it saying it. And so uh, we're in the book of Titus. And so just so you know uh, how Titus has played out, the book of Titus is one of the rare books, actually only first Timothy and second Timothy are the other book where uh, uh, it's a book written to a certain man for the church. It's written to a pastor for the church. First and second Timothy and Titus are called uh, the pastoral epistles. And so um, the unique perspective that I've tried to come up and say the, the last couple weeks is what Titus affords us is though we believe we are a church on mission. We have planted a church for mission. We believe that we exist for the good of the city. That's what we want to do for the glory of God. But we recognize there's moments within the text that we get to stop and be introspective. And Titus affords us that. Okay. So for eight weeks, we're going to stop and say, well, what does it look like for leadership in the church? What does it look like for grace in the church, for works in the church? What does it look like for women in the home, for men in the home? What does it look like for all of these different aspects for us to deal like a, a, as a, a city on a hill um, and, and not because we're separate from them, but as we live among the nations, how have we been called to be countercultural in some of these ways? And so that's what Titus is going to afford us. Now, if you weren't with us uh, last week, we, we actually addressed and went through w- what leadership is, uh, how God has laid out um, elders and, and the requirements for elders. And <clears throat> we talked about um, myself, Jim and John, who are elders, and how we'll bring up another man to you uh, the last Sunday in Titus and, and present him to, to, to some of you guys to uh, know who he is. And then uh, there'll be a process. And if there's any reason that you guys don't think you should be an elder. So we, we believe very much in the way that God has set up leadership in the church. And, and I, um, I want to say this because I said it last week that um, we recognize or some of you have been burned by leadership in the church, right? Um, but it's important that you understand that God has still put that in place. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that it's been corrupt by, by others and because of sin. And so um, we, we follow that. We are an elder-led church, uh, a church that is led through plurality. So I, I have, when it comes to, to many things, one vote. And there's a lot of things that um, I don't always get my way on. Um, many, many things. Um, it's quite frustrating. Um, but but the reality is, uh, the, the reality is, is, is this is a good way to operate because I'm 31 years old. I definitely don't have the answer. Jim is four times my age and he knows everything. Okay. Now, um, at the, the last thing that we had read uh, when it came to elders was this, this little declaration that we didn't get to go in too much, but it was a requirement of an elder. And you're going to see why this requirement is important. And what I'm going to do to start our passage is what, what uh, Paul's going to do is he's going to begin to go into the interaction of some, some problems that are going on in the church. And so I'm not going to start in verse 10. I'm going to go there and we're going to go through it verse by verse. But I actually want to explain some things uh, first. But, but here is uh, verse 9, what we read last week. Week, one of the requirements of an elder. So, so understand it's going from verse nine into verse 10. And, and, uh, and I think that's going to provide some uh, much needed context. This is what it said in verse nine. He, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to two things, ready, give instruction and in sound doctrine. And also number two, rebuke those who contradict it. So from the jump, what we're going to get in our passage is there is a right way to believe things. You have opinions about things, but there is a right way because how do we know this? Because there is sound doctrine, that word sound, which can actually appear two more times in our passage this morning. I means healthy. There's a healthy way to view things. 
And I, my job as an elder is to, as those who contradict that healthy way, is to rebuke or to say, no, 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 that's not right. You're wrong on how you believe that, right? So there is an absolute way to believe things, to understand things. And so we're going to get into some of the nuances of what that is. But I want to start in verses uh, 12 and 13, because it's going to require um, uh, some things for us to do that. And I'm going to uh, reread uh, verse 9 in a second. But starting in 12, I, I think this is important because we've been saying this is uh, to a church in Crete, but a lot of us don't know uh, what Crete is or who Crete is, and, and this passage provides us some of that context. So verse 12, we'll come back to verse 10. One of the Cretans, or, or Cretans, as uh, uh, Leon, uh, uh, Laney said, I'm going to say Cretans, um, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gut- gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound. There's that word sound again, sound in the faith. Okay, so, oh, I do have it. Okay, good. So let me just show you very quickly, because this is going to be good for us to know. Um, let me show you a map of Crete, okay? I got a laser pointer. I'm legit. Okay, um, now, um, here is Crete, and I, it just, that's a, a zoomed up thing. It kind of looks like a, a weird flying dragon, okay? But this is that weird flying dragon. And what is, what this, this, uh, little island here of Crete, the reason it's important that you know where it is, and normally I wouldn't throw up a map and, and talk geography with you, but this is actually really important to know, um, the kind of context this church is in, because, um, this, this island is not just one big island. It's actually made up of a bunch of little islands. But here's what's unique about the placement of this island, okay? So if you know anything about geography here. Um, you know down here is Egypt, right? And up here we have uh, Italy, which modern day Italy, or, or uh, more importantly back then is Rome. And, and you have all, you know, where Hungary is, and you're getting into all these. But here, if you notice where Crete is, there's this island Cyprus over here, where Crete is, it would be difficult for you to travel from up here north, going down south, and not stop in Crete, okay? Or, more, or maybe, let's take two uh, modern uh, uh, things that, that would definitely take place. If you're traveling from, let's say, modern-day Italy to downtown to modern-day Egypt, you would stop in Crete. Now, here's what's crazy about this. When you think of Italians, do you think of Egyptians? No. I mean, not just, not just because they're, they're a different race or they speak a different language, but even culturally. Think of how you would describe an Egyptian, what comes to mind, um, even if it's not right ways, what culture has told you or whatever. Um, when you think of an Egyptian who's down here, okay, you do not think of an Italian who's up there. I mean, the modern day, uh, you know, silly, whatever it's called, uh, 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 cultural equivalents, we'd say like, we think of like a Mario type figure up here, right? And then we think of like Pharaoh down here. I mean, honestly, I know those are extreme silly, um, character caricatures of, of them and not right. Maybe some of you are angry that I just did that. But um, <clears throat> the reality is we don't think of these two cultures. But here's what's happening on Crete, okay? Um, these cultures are colliding on Crete. So you have now Italy, and, and if you're going from Italy to Egypt, you're running into people from, from Egypt going to Italy, and they're clashing. So, so it's not just them, but it's all over. It's everyone crossing, going from Crete, leaving from Crete, and very similar to New York, right? If you've ever traveled overseas as you, you continue to head east, most likely you're going to stop in, in New York or maybe just somewhere on the, the east coast, but you'll stop in New York. And what's unique about New York is, uh, unique New York, unique New York. What, what's, what's awesome about New York is people who travel from other countries, they land in New York and, and, and usually maybe they, they probably stay. And so if you've ever been to New York, it is a, melting pot of culture. I mean, you have all types of culture there. And that is what Crete is like. Crete people have come and stayed and they end up getting stuck there, whatever it is. And now you have this kind of all these different philosophies, all these different theologies, all these different ideas are meshing together in Crete. Now, 
Crete is not just this melting pot of, of culture. It also has its own culture of its own. It is known as not just having philosophies and, and theologies and all these different things, but the people in Crete are downright terrible. They are, and I quote, listen to what he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, Epimedius is the one who says this. He's a famous Cretan, one of the seven wise men of Greek. He was from Crete. Um, he essentially, like, he, he was born there, raised there. He knows um, all about them. This is what he says about his own hometown. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Lazy gluttons means slow belly. I don't even know what to do with that, okay? But the idea being that, that uh, there's a culture. So when all these theologies... All these philosophies cram into Crete. It's already a set culture of wickedness. And this is the church, this is the, 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 the church that Titus is pastoring. So he's dealing with all these different philosophies, all these different things that are coming together, and, and, it's, and it's starting to bring up um, things that need to be addressed. I mean, really important things that need to be addressed. And so he goes on in verse 13. This testimony is true, saying, what is there? Um, Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And so his answer to um, all these philosophies, and this word rebukes appears 17 times in the New Testament, and has always a tendency to go, hey, bring them back to faith. So, so I, here's where I'm going to tie in why, it's under, why I started with verses 12 and 13. Because these people in the church who have different philosophies or different ideas or different theologies are not pagans. They're Christians. They're Christians who have meshed together or added different philosophies of Egypt or different theologies of Italy. They, 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 they've taken their Christianity and they're adding to it. And so Paul looks at this and goes, Titus, this is a big deal. You need to rebuke them. You need to remind them of the truth. And, and, and that's important. That's really important that we see that, okay? Because even, even the word Cretan, there's a, a Greek word in, in, um, in uh, the, the New Testament that we get for uh, Cretans. It's kreatos, and it literally means liar. Like, we get our words from liar. And so um, they're in a culture that is telling them lies. This is literally, like, the, the way they understand this. So they've got to be able to navigate these waters well. So with that as our context, so you kind of understand what Crete is like, let's begin in verse 10, Okay. So again, coming from uh, so that uh, he may be able to, talking about the, the elder in verse 9, he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And then in verse 10, the very first word is what? For, okay? He needs to be able to do this because, or for, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, okay? I'm going to say it again. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. With that melding pot of different philosophies, there are people in the church who are empty talkers. They're, they're deceiving people. They're deceiving people. And um, I'm sorry, they're empty talkers, uh, deceivers, and they're insubordinate. So this is a big deal. Hey, Titus, I need you to deal with these people who are doing that. Um, what I love about the word insubordinate in there is it means uh, it's the same word that was used for an elder about his kid about his child, if, if his child is insubordinate, the reason he needs to know how to deal with, with someone who's insubordinate is because there's people in the church who are insubordinate. They won't fall in line. They have their own beliefs. They want to do it their own way. But the reality is there is a right way to believe. And so an elder knows, has to know how to be able to process this. So here's what's awesome. Um, the next statement actually gives us insight as to one of, or at least the main issue, the main um, philosophy, the main theology that is being brought into the church and is corrupting people. And this is how we know. This is what it says. Again, verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers uh, and deceivers. Hear this, especially those of the circumcision, circumcision party. 
Now, that, that statement may not mean anything to you, but let me give you some background. When we started a little over a year ago, um, a culture that we were going to put from the, the ground, something we wanted uh, it to be in the DNA of how we did communities and how we did Sundays, was this little statement that we are going to be everything but liars. Okay, so we recognize that we are going to be a church on mission, but when it um, dealt with interacting with each other, we were not going to hide the fact that we had sin. So you dealt with pornography, you dealt with greed, you dealt with gambling, you dealt with uh, gossip, whatever it was, that's fine. You deal with those things, but we don't lie about it. And so much so that if you're going to come on Sundays or come to community and wear your Jesus cape like you're awesome, you're going to be the one who feels out of place. Because this is a community of openness, this is a community of honesty, because we recognize, according to 1 Peter 1.9, we've only received the end of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. So right now, though I am a, a considered a saint, I am living in this reality that I'm removing my old man, and there are old tendencies of old Sean that want to come in. He wants to fire back, he wants to do this, he wants to do that, and though I've received the end of my faith, I'm, I'm working towards that end right now, and there are moments where I cry, Wretched man that I am, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And the things I want to do, why don't I do them? So from the beginning, we wanted to bake into our culture this idea of, man, we're going to be everything but liars. We're sinners, but we're not going to lie about it. We're not going to hide from it. We're, we're at our core, we're going to be honest about what we're dealing with. Now, I didn't have to make up that culture because from day one, we started with a book that told the story of Jesus. It was the book of Mark. And you know who the main protagonists in these stories, the main um, enemies or cause the most disruption with Jesus uh, uh, in, in the book of Mark? It was these, these, this group, this, these people, these religious leaders called the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin. They were religious leaders who looked at Jesus and doesn't like that idea of honesty, but, but looked at this and said, who do you think you are? You're, you're, you're sitting here coming, telling us we're wrong. We are doing all the right things. How can you say all the right things are wrong? Now, here's what's crazy. Those people who are pushing against Jesus, who have all their ducks in a row religiously, who have all their ducks in a row in morality, some of them become Christians. And now some of those Pharisees, some of those religious leaders become Christians. When the church is exploding, they begin to interact with the church. And Paul, in another book he writes in the book of Galatians, calls these people who are now interacting, looking at some of these Christians saying, hey, it's cool. Jesus is good. I believe in Jesus. We're on board with Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to, to not eat pork. You also need to make sure you follow the law. And Paul calls these men Judaizers. You're trying to make these Christians live like Jews. And he calls them another thing in the, in, in the book of Galatians. He calls them the circumcision party. So when Paul says to Titus, and I quote, especially those of the circumcision party, that is a big tell as to what we know is going on in this church. What's happening at the core is a word that, that, that I've said many times. Um, and what's crazy is the Bible talks about it at length. Um, but, but we don't address it too often in the church. It's this term, legalism. It's the idea that you can have Jesus, but you, to have Jesus, you need to make sure you get all the right things all right. So when he says, especially those of the circumcision party, we can see some of the doctrines. Now, um, here, here's why, why we're going to go down this rabbit trail. Um, there's probably 20%, 15 to 20% of the New Testament talks about false teachers talks about um, a false teaching, talks about um, improper doctrine or whatever it is. And, um, and we don't talk too much about that, um, but I think it's important that if the Bible's going to talk as often as it does about it, and it's going to talk about it again here, that we address this idea that there are people 
in our congregation, some intentionally, some intentionally, and some not intentionally, who continue to try to create a culture that is not grace-based. That, that maybe not intentionally, you begin to take your standards in which the gospel maybe lays out. And, and so, so let me, uh, I'll give you a million examples uh, uh, in a couple minutes. But the reality is you would take like, like cussing, right? And you say cussing is a sin. Okay, here's, here's what's crazy about this. I don't think people should walk around dropping the F-bomb. That's not something I would encourage, okay? But the reality is you, you define what, what cursing is. Now I sound like a fifth grade argument talking to his teacher. But, but the, the, the truth is you've defined what some of those, those norms are and you've imposed what you hear and what you believe on them. So when I'm in Portland dealing with a group of pastors and they're cussing like sailors, they're smoking like sailors and they're drinking like they, they're, gonna, they're gonna die, um, okay? <laughs> I'm dealing, and I'm looking at these guys going, holy cow, they love Jesus. Like they love Jesus and their context is completely different than mine. So I have two options in that moment. I can impose what I believe is right or wrong when I read the text that according to Galatians 5, that um, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these things do not belong to you. Why are you saying these things? This language, okay, I can impose that or I can recognize Man, the, the way that God is fleshing that out to me is not the way that, and so me imposing what, what God is doing in me um, on them is, is legalism. This, this finds its way in rated R movies, in music, in, in gambling. I mean, it finds its, in smoking, it finds its place everywhere. So um, lest you think I'm some kind of like, all right, free hippie, um, let, let me go on and explain some of this because I think it's important. Um, so here's what I'm gonna do. Um, Paul is gonna tell Titus three reasons why these teachers have to be stopped, why legalism is terrible, why you think getting it right is the reason God loves you is awful. Let's go on. This is what he says, especially those of the circumcision party. Verse 11, here's the first reason, problem number one with legalism. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Again, verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families, okay? This word upsetting, um, I, I need you to understand, churches are not meeting like this, but what's happening is these Judaizers, the circumcision party, are going into a home, <clears throat> excuse me, they're going into a home of 15 to 20 people, they're going in, and, and they're, they're, they're these families, these uh, maybe it's um, uh, a, a simple family of five or six, or maybe it's a church family, whatever it is, they're in this home, and they're upsetting them. And, and when he says upsetting, uh, understand in the Greek, it's not denoting like they're beginning to weep and cry, they're getting upset. No, no, literally the word uh, for upsetting here, um, and, and I love some of your uh, translations, if you have the NLT say it completely different, it literally means like mutating some families, or like corrupting some families. Here's what, here's the, the, the first problem um, that ultimately I would say, and I've wrote these down so I can say a little linear for you. Problem number one is it's a false truth. Legalism is a false truth and keeps people from the real truth. So if you're a Christian, you believe you're saved by grace, someone comes in and tells you, yeah, but you need to stop doing these things. Stop, 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 stop. Do this, do this, do this, do this. What happens is your Christianity literally is being mutated into something else. It is not what it was supposed to be. And now it's Jesus and. It's Jesus plus. They must be stopped. That is not okay. And, and we know it's not okay because they're doing it for shameful gain. In the fall, we're going to go through um, the longest sermon that Jesus preaches uh, in the Gospels. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. 
And in chapter six of Matthew, he goes specifically at these type of people, these religious leaders. And, and he says, here's, here's the, the problem. They're doing it for shameful gain because some of them, when they fast, they come in, they go, oh, I've been fa- I fasted lunch and I'm dying. I, I mean, God's good. I just, he's really revealing some stuff, but oh, I just can't do this anymore. Or, or they come out into the street corners and they love to wear their pastoral coats, right? And they go and they go, oh, hey, pastor. Hey, how are you? Pastor, pastor, how are you? I'm good. I'm, it is well, right? They love, the, they love to sit in the nice seats. Uh, they love to pray really long prayers because people hear their words. They love the attention. And this shameful gain is not financial, but it's reputation. They love to be known. And so they're going into this because they have white-knuckled the best. They're going and say, you need to do this. See, I'm doing it. You need to do this. And they're imposing this standard on them. And that is not the gospel. That is what uh, uh, Paul calls in Galatians 1, another gospel. He actually calls it in Galatians 3, witchcraft. It's demonic. To think you can earn God's grace is demonic. Let's continue on. Problem number two with legalism. As these teachers continue to teach, he says uh, uh, this, as we just read in verses 12 and 13. And you can see now in, in the confines of verses 12 and 13 why he says this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. Cretans Cre- uh, are always liars, evil beasts. Their testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. You can see how 12 and 13 are important there, as I explained um, up above. And he gets into to, um, the, the second problem, verse 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So uh, again, carrying from verse 13, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So there's a healthy way to believe and not a healthy way to believe. And not, one of the ha- not healthy ways to believe is devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. So here's the problem, second problem I would say. Rather than obeying God's will and legalism, it, hear me, this, I'm trying to stay linear with you, becomes about obeying human commands. So um, <clears throat> let me tell you how this is actually fleshed out in their time. Uh, there is a, a, a book called the Mishnah. And what the Jews would do is they would take all the commands of the law in the Old Testament and, and, and God gave them these laws. And these are, these are laws that the Jews would follow. But they would do what we would do with the commands in the New Testament. They would say, well, what does it really mean not to cuss? Okay, well, well so the Mishnah was a book on how to follow the laws. So, so um, when it says you, uh, you need to rest on the Sabbath, they would go, well, what does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? That means you can't walk more than 12 steps on Sunday. If you take more than 12 steps on Sunday, so they put man-made laws onto God's law. Do you understand? So the book of Mi- the, this Mishnah is this book that tells them how to follow the law. The problem is that is not the law. That's not the law. That is what's imposed on the law. And so one of these things that we, we found in Mark 7, if you were here uh, with us when we had started this whole thing, was uh, Jesus' disciples didn't wash his hands. Uh, and the Jews come up and go, why don't you wash your hands? This, this is, this is you, you, you disregard the, the, um, uh, the cost and, and what our, our forefathers laid out in regards to, to obeying this law. And Jesus goes, you're not following the law. You're following man-made traditions. But these people believed it so much. There's two crazy stories that um, because of the Mishnah and how you had to wash your hands, it was the, the, even though nowhere in the Old Testament does it say you have to wash your hands uh, but before, except unless you're a kid in here, you need to wash your hands. But nowhere in the law does it say you need to wash your hands before you eat. Um, they believe this so much that, that there's two stories. One rabbi forgot to wash his hands and he was excommunicated excommunicated. He was not allowed to be a rabbi anymore. Another one died in a prison in Rome because as he got his food and water, he was given such a small amount of water. He didn't drink it. Rather, he needed to follow the ritual basis of of washing before he ate. He washed his hands in it, right? He washes his hands in it and he dies of dehydration. 
These men were adamant about following the law. Here's the problem. It was a law of men. It, it was not the law of God. And so when he says, and I quote, devoting themselves to Jewish myths, this is what he's talking about, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. That is what he's talking about. So the second problem with legalism, as I said, is rather than obeying God's will, it becomes about obeying human commands. And then the last thing, problem number three, verse 15, this requires quite a bit of explanation. To the pure, now this is a declaration. He's not telling them to do anything else. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So, um... I'm going to explain that, but let me give you the problem with number three with legalism. Again, I'll read it to you. Rather than keeping people pure, legalism actually corrupts you. So, so I'm going to read this again. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So, let me, so here's how I would explain this. Legalism starts in a completely different theological assumption than grace does. So here's what I mean. Legalism starts with the basis that sin is out there. That there are things that are sinful that I have to avoid lest they come on me and I become sinful. Very similar to cooties, honestly. So, so, so what the basis it starts with, there are things out there that I have to avoid and it is surface level things and so I need to avoid them lest I become sinful. And so God becomes extremely manageable because I can manage what's out there I can manage not doing this. I can manage not doing that. And this was a big issue. People, again, the Jew, like, this is, like I said, this is talked about constantly in the New Testament. In the book of Colossians, um, this is a, a longer verse, but I want to read it to you. Paul actually talks about this very idea that sin is out there. You're trying to fix the sin problem. But the issue is sin is in here. Sin is flowing from here. You're taking things that are good and you're corrupting them. It's not that they're corrupt and, you're com- and they're coming onto you. No, rather, they are sinful or you're sinful and you're taking good things and corrupting them. This is what Paul says in Colossians. Same issue. Um, uh, Judaizers are coming in. The circumcision party the, uh, are, are coming in. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. It's a longer section, but hear what it says. I think it's really good. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to festival of, uh, or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worshiping of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous, by sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, which from the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, you submit to regulations. Don't handle, don't taste, Don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Can you hear what he's saying? People are saying, don't do this, don't do this. This is according to human precepts. This is legalism. Listen to what he says in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Hear this, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So those things out there, because people get drunk, you avoiding alcohol does not make you less sinful. 
That does not make you less sinful. The, the, the alcohol is not the issue. God has created things good. Man has taken those good things and has corrupted them. And you to say now because we have to avoid them, hear me, I'll just quote Colossians again, this is self-made religion and asceticism, a severity of the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You understand? So technology is not the issue for your pornography. That's not the problem. You have deep-rooted issues. You have deep-rooted issues. And you need to deal with those things. But legalism does not want to deal with those things. You want to know why? Because it's hard. To crucify your flesh is difficult. Because, I, listen, my propensity is to white-knuckle this beast. I can do that. You want me to stop sinning? I won't watch rated R movies forever. I won't watch PG-13 movies. I won't watch movies. If that's what you want me to do. But I'm never getting at the issue. I'm never understanding or recognizing that sin is not out there. It isn't here. And so when he says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. I I can look at alcohol and go, this is a God-given gift. I don't have to get drunk. I don't have to become inebriated. I don't have to become addicted. This is a God-given gift, and it's pure. But to the defiled, this, this good, pure thing, it has to be avoided. But your conscience are seared. You, you don't understand the gospel. As a matter of fact, we have this, this verse in our kitchen that I think says it perfectly in 1 Timothy 4. We have verse 4 up on the kitchen, but I want to read verses 1 through 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, <clears throat> some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So some are going to leave the faith and devote themselves to teachings of demons. How are they going to do this? They're going to th- do this through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. How familiar is that uh, to the passage we just read in Titus uh, 1.15? Now hear this. Here's what these, uh, these liars will say. They forbid marriage, require abstinence from food that God required to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Hear this, verse 4. Oh, this is so beautiful. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Here, here's what I love. Some of you who grew up in church right now, you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're telling me all, like, ah, okay. Don't go there. I get it. I get it. I totally get it. Because there are corruptions of God's good gift. For example, sex, right? Sex is a God-given gift. It should not be avoided. But it should not be avoided in the confines of marriage. And pornography is a disruption or disturbance of God's good given gift. So it should be avoided. But when we look at things that God has given that are good and pure, we can look at those and go, sex doesn't need to be uh, avoided. Sex is a good thing. Word, right? You know what I'm saying? Okay. No, are you guys disagreeing with me on this? Okay. Um, Okay. And because sex is a good thing, I understand that God has given it to me as a gift. I'm going to enjoy it in the fullest. And when I try to defile it, it's not sex's problem when I want to have sex before marriage. No, no, no. I have sin within me. That's the issue. Sex is not the issue. So when he's getting at this all to the pure, all things are pure. Now, I've tried to give an example. If you've been here longer than two months, you've heard me say this over and over. Like, you're not saved because of the movies you watch. You're not saved because of the music you watch. You're not saved, blah, 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 blah. I've said these things over and over and over, trying to uh, put these on you. And, And I want to read a really long quote to you to hopefully get your mind around 
what I think Paul is saying. I'm reading a commentary, just so you know, for the entire book of Titus, um, two commentaries specifically, but one is uh, by a guy named Tim Chester. It's called Titus is for You. And um, in this, I thought he made a really cool statement, and it's fairly long, but I want to read it to you because I think it unearths more than just me saying, it's not the movies, it's not the music, it's not the blah, it's not the blah, 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 okay? Um, but, but, but ultimately, it's going to get at... Um, other examples that I haven't been able to bring up and maybe gives them in a different flavor than I've already done. So this is what he would say. Again, a long quote, but just listen to what he says. Here it is. Consider how these principles, the principles we've just talked about, might apply to to the issues we face today. For example, here's here's what he would use. For example, consider the issue of computer games. Someone might argue computer games can be addictive and can encourage laziness. Therefore, computer games are bad. Paul would say wrong. Computer games do not corrupt us. We corrupt computer games because our, compu- because our corrupt hearts use them in addictive ways. So what should our attitude towards computer games be? We cannot say that they are always bad and should always be avoided, but neither can we say they are always good and can always be used. If someone is addicted to computer games and is spending, uh, spending time playing games when they should be serving others or they are playing uh, along into the night so that they are, don't have the ability to function the following uh, day and are impaired which is, you've played a lot of video games at that point, then it may be appropriate, yes, it might be appropriate, for them to get rid of their computer games. The corrupting influence in this situation is not the computer games, but the user. Or let us consider another example. Someone might argue romantic comedies, here we go, let's get it, um, romantic comedies encourage people to be discontent, therefore they are bad. Paul would say wrong. Romantic comedies, uh, romantic comedies do not corrupt us. We corrupt romantic comedies because our corrupt hearts respond with discontentment. So what should our attitude be towards romantic comedies be? We cannot say uh, they are always bad and should be avoided, but neither can we say they are always good and can always be watched. If uh, watching romantic comedies makes you dissatisfied with your singleness or in your marriage, then it may be well appropriate for you to avoid watching them. Now, a helpful way, hear what he says here. A helpful way of thinking about the difference is this. Legalism says you should not do this. The gospel says you need not do this because God is always bigger and better than that sin. Legalism says you should not sleep with your boyfriend. You should not read your Bible, or you should read your Bible every day. You should not get drunk. You should witness to your friend. You should not lose your temper. None of those are good news to someone struggling with those issues. To them, it is condemnation and sounds impressive. But what the gospel says is this, you need not. You need not get drunk because Jesus offers a better refuge. You need not lose your temper because God is in control of the situation. Sin is always making the promise and the gospel exposes those promises, false promises, and points to God who is bigger and better than anything sin offers. That is good news. So the difference is what Paul is trying to unearth is teachers are coming in and they're saying, avoid these things. You have to do that because that's what makes you righteous. And that is just not the case. You know what's crazy? After those three problems with legalism is, we get in verse 16, the repercussions. If we continue to go down the road thinking that we can earn God's grace. Here's the repercussions as a perfect example as we continue to focus on doing right or wrong instead of focusing on Jesus. Verse 16 They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You know what's so crazy about that? That word unfit is really interesting um, because it, it has to deal with everywhere else in scripture, like something that is counterfeit, predominantly like counterfeit money or counterfeit coins. 
What, what he's literally saying is you've brought it, you've made a currency to earn God's favor, but God has said, hey, bro, your money's no good here. You, you think you getting it right is, is, is what it's all about. You don't understand my grace. You, you don't get it. Like you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and doing all the right things and having the perfect chances and avoiding the computer games and not watching romantic comedies, that's a currency you made. That's not a currency I made. You thinking I love you because of those things, your money is no good here. Your conscience is seared. You think it's about you. Which that's where I'll finish. Um, I, I want to read a quote from a guy named Tim Keller who I think talks about this really well. And then I want to read one last very small quote from a guy named John Owen um, that won't be on the screen, but I would love for us to meditate on it. Um, here, here's, here's the thing about, about all this is um, I do believe there's an answer. And so now I have to think, remember con- contextually here, as an elder, as a teacher, or forget as a teacher, as a Christian, a brother, sister, you, me, whoever it is, we have a responsibility to look at legalism, people who think they can earn God's grace and call it out. But instead of just calling it out, here's what's beautiful about all of this. There's an answer to that problem. And it's what he just said. It's the gospel. And so what we need to do is we need to constantly remind ourselves because even as Christians, the default of our heart, where we're going to constantly go, because just like in Crete, every man-made religion is the same. Every single one. This is what makes Christianity super unique outside of our God becoming a man. This is what the philosophy and theology of Christianity is, that God loves us first and we don't have to do anything. But when man-made theologies and man-made philosophies comes on, come on the scene, it's always, I need to earn so I can get. And so this is put in front of us and we go, no, 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 that's not right. But as Christians, we always go back there. Oh, that's right. I I love Jesus. Oh, that's right. Jesus loves me despite of what I do, right? So we're always, and and, and Keller talks about this. He ironically, again, uses a scenario of a computer, but has nothing to do with what Tim, Tim Chester's talking about. This is what he says. A fundamental insight of Martin Luther was that religion is the default mode of the human heart. So legalism, you're naturally gonna go there. Here's, here's his example. Your computer operates automatically in a default mode unless you deliberately tell it to do something else. So Luther says that even after you are converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on, nether, on, another, on other principles unless you deliberately, repeatedly set it to gospel mode. So your computer's gonna go to sleep naturally. You have it on a timer, 15 minutes. It's gonna go to sleep. Until you move the mouse or hit a key, it doesn't wake up. And the only way to fight legalism The only way to fight legalism is to not be legalistic. That's crazy. But to remind yourself of the gospel. You have to wake it. No, no, no. No, no, no. I I messed up. I messed up again. I looked again. I spent again. I'm angry again. I yelled again. I was wrong again. But God is not distant from me in this moment. No, no, no. Because of the gospel, I'm loved. I'm loved. I'm loved. I'm here. I'm here. God isn't removing me. from. I messed up again. I screwed up again. I yelled again. I looked again. I shouldn't have done that again. But I'm loved. And so this is what's fighting us, reminding ourselves of the gospel. And this is where I'll finish, I promise. The last thing I'll say. Um, there is a premise ultimately, that you need to understand, and this is the the hardcore way you can avoid legalism. It's how you understand your father. So check it out. Um, Not to sound callous or hard-hearted, but there are four people in this world that I will cry when they die. Maybe five. Jim Ellis might be added to that list. But it is my three kids and my wife. 
What's crazy, outside of my wife, I don't love anyone on this earth. And I love you guys a lot, but all the combined love I have for you does not equal how much I love my kids. And there is not one moment where I do not ever want my kids far from me. I want to snuggle them. I want them to be close. I want them to to want to to be near. I love when Eve gives me kisses. I love when Corbin likes to snuggle. I I, I love it. I love when they want to be close. I, I want them to be near to me. I don't want them to be far. I don't start with the basis of them being far. But the difference between the gospel and legalism is legalism starts with the premise that God doesn't want you near him because you're sinful. But the gospel says... He views you, hear this, as a child. And if that familial language is anything for me to understand, not one part of me goes, keep your distance, son. Not one part. No, the gospel is different from legalism because the premise begins with God desperately wanting you near to him. He is not mad at you. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't want you to be far. He doesn't want you to feel the the weight and guilt that keeps you from him. No, he is a father and he wants you close. He wants you so close that he compares you talking to him to some persistent neighbor who won't go away. Can I have some bread? Can I have some bread? Until eventually fine. He tells us to ask for bread so much, to come to him so much that he would be annoyed. That's how much he wants you to be close to him. Legalism starts with, you got to earn it to get there. The gospel says you're there. Enjoy it. That's the difference. John Owen, I quoted a couple weeks ago as a Puritan, and I think he sums it up perfectly. This is not on the screen, so just listen. It's just a, a one-line statement. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. That's just the reality. And based in legalism, you don't start with that premise. The gospel starts with that premise. So if you're a Christian in here, and you know you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you need to live in that reality. Legalism does not save you. The gospel does. We're loved the same way a child is loved because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Let us fight bad teaching with that. That's what we need to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are, for your grace, your goodness. We recognize that there is um, a default within our heart to want to revert to religiosity. Um, It's easy. It's manageable. Um, I can stop doing things and never have to deal with heart issues. But it's crazy because you tell us in in Mark 7 that like it's not what what comes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out that that there's this this idea that you want us to see that you care about the deep things. It's not about... Um, it's not just simply about like looking at a woman with lust in her heart. It's about, about our heart. It's about dealing with deep issues within our heart. And it's not the looking. It's, it's, it's not the, the saying. It's, it's the, the deep issues. Why are we saying? Why are we doing that? And we pray, Holy Spirit, that's what we need to be worked on. There is a call to follow the law without question. There is a call to do things for you. But if we do those things to earn you, we are unfit for good works. We cannot do them. That is not the currency you are accepting. Which leads us to the last thing we're thankful for. The currency you've accepted, the only currency will ever be valuable in, in, uh, in the heaven of heavens is the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It's because of your blood, it's because of your sacrifice that we're loved. That the Father sees us like he sees you. We are, we are 
invested into you and we give all to you because you've given all. And it is but a a response of love to do that. Anything else is demonic. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. We love you. We praise you. We desperately need you in this. May the default of our heart continue to be reverted back to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.